0: This is Belonging, a podcast that explores being alive in the age of loneliness. I'm your host, Becca Piastrelli, a writer, mother, and community tender currently living on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people in present-day Marin County, California. In this show, we explore topics like rites of passage, cultivating meaningful community, seasonal and cyclical living, and what it means to be a good ancestor in these times. I have thought-provoking conversations with friends, teachers, elders, and ancestral medicine keepers to help support you in bringing more meaning and connection to your life. I also pop in here and there to share updates and learnings from my own story, because we were meant to do this together, cosmically holding hands as we walk the spiral of life you can expect to be challenged by new or old ideas, face your beliefs and what systems informed them, get curious and brave to tell the truth about the deeper, harder things, and feel comforted in the knowing that you don't have to navigate it all alone. Hello, and welcome back to Belonging the Podcast. Becca Piastrelli here, coming at you on a beautiful summer day here in the Northern Hemisphere, Coast Miwok Land, Northern California. Feeling good, feeling healthy and vibrant, getting sleep, just feeling really grateful to myself for the care I'm giving myself and all the things I'm saying no to, to create space to care for myself. Something I'm realizing as I'm emerging with the spring and summer from my long inner winter and my diagnosis with delayed postpartum depression is how much I, as a mother, as a parent, struggle to give myself care when I have childcare, because I have limited amounts of time when I'm not like on with the kid, right? So there's a certain amount of hours of the day when I have, when we have childcare and it's as someone who has been preaching self-care for so long, it it is a challenge. I find it to be a surprising challenge for me to choose slower paced, caring things for myself that aren't sitting on a laptop or, quote, getting things done, rushing around, running errands, crossing things off the list. And uh, it's a real mindset shift because I'm being reminded by my body and by my energy levels, by basically an expanding capacity, that moving slower and taking the time to care for myself, which could mean working out, which could mean taking a nap, which could mean being in my garden, taking a hike, going on a walk, all of these things, going to like self-care appointments, like getting my nails painted or getting body work or acupuncture, Um, all those things expand my capacity and my energy and my tolerance for discomfort and my ability to be present with my child's discomfort and all of these things. And yet it's like the list, the list of things to do And I also am trying to really get back into work. I'm here doing this podcast that requires a lot of my energy, a lot of time. I want to spread this course, this home practice, tending the flame around. I'm thinking about hosting events locally here. I've got ideas again. And it's it's this interesting challenge with like, oh, I have time where my child is tended to that I'm paying for what's like the most ROI like what is the most effective productive successful thing I can do with that time so it's an interesting mindset shift that I am in and I have I've been sharing on social media and I was I was on this panel with my friend Ashley Burnett with a bunch of fellow um sort of like cyclical living seasonal traditionally quote feminine leaders business owners and we were talking about like how we do work. And I, I really shared this practice I'm in, which is I only set myself to accomplish three things a day. This doesn't mean I accomplish three things a day. It doesn't mean I only do those three things. There've been some questions about this, but it's it helps me with managing expectations of myself and um, not going into this Pattern I've been in for a very long time of like racing myself or racing the clock to do the basically like doing the most things in a day. So I end the day feeling exhausted, but like victorious at crossing the most things off the list. And so the three things are every area of my life. Like when I have childcare, it's like, is one of the things going to be body work? Is one of the things going to be working out? Is one of the things going to be recording an intro for this podcast? It is one of those things today. And then the next thing is to go visit my friend who's about to give birth. That's one of my three things. And then other things come in like um, emptying the dishwasher this morning and feeding my child and organizing a grocery delivery. Like those things come in and they're like must do's, right? And I say three things a day, and often the third one doesn't happen, but it's a way for me to adjust, center, focus expectations of myself. And it's really helping and working as I'm emerging from this long winter and coming into a place of, okay, I have, the sap is rising, I have energy, and I want to use this energy, like express, output this energy in a way that serves all of me, all parts of me. Turns out that is very challenging, the internalization of capitalism, the internalization of go, 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 growth, 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 move, move, move. Oh, it's a lifelong journey, I'm realizing. So that's a little check-in for me. I have a pretty cool episode with you today. With a now friend, Nicole Antoinette, who I was on her podcast called The Pop-Up Pod, where in her first season, she was interviewing people about whether she should get married or not and asked me to talk about how having children impacts a marriage. We call it the baby bomb. It's like throwing a bomb into your partnership and seeing what happens. So I will link to that episode in the show notes because I'm really proud of that. And it's very honest and real. And then I said, can you come on my podcast? Because Nicola has a devotional spiritual practice of long distance hiking by herself for like weeks, months. And she's written some trail journals, one called How to Be Alone, that we will link to in the show notes that I read and was like floored, floored by how much she shares and how uncomfortable I physically felt with her experience. And so I said, can you please come on and talk to me about, and she, she didn't grow up like outdoorsy. She grew up like a city kid and did her first long distance hike in her like mid thirties. She's actually hiking right now the Appalachian Trail, and she microblogs from the trail on Instagram. It's at nick, and I see dot antoinette. If you just like put in the search engine or whatever, the search part of Instagram, Nicole Antoinette, like Marie Antoinette, you'll see, you'll see um, what she's shared from the trail. And it's really powerful. She's such an amazing writer. But I was like, can you talk to me about the things that come up for me around how difficult it is to spend time with yourself in a place where you have intentionally blocked out any noise or distraction. It's like, how many times do we say we're with ourselves, but like maybe we can't last more than 45 seconds because then we could look at our phone or we could turn on a podcast or, or a show or we could text someone or call someone, you know, and I'm not making those activities wrong, but how much are we not spending time with ourselves and our thoughts and our feelings? And and then there's the whole aspect of, of, you know, weaving a relationship with the living world by living outside and moving your body outside, which is like, can be so romanticized. It's like the way our ancestors once lived, but like, there's a lot of fear that comes up around water and going to the bathroom and feeding yourself and heat and cold and the limits of your body. And she shares more about how she gets really real about the fears that come up as a woman hiking alone and the, the role of intuition and how doing hard things has really served her and and her trust in her body. And I'm someone who I, my parents took me hiking all the time and I was always so annoyed by it. And now I find myself I do it off, uh, sometimes, not often. Uh, and I, I'm wondering after this conversation, like why I don't do it more? And what about my beliefs about my body? And what are my beliefs about specifically discomfort? I'm reminded of the episode, i linked to in the show notes with Ayana Young from For the Wild, who talks more about um, how she lives in more of a wild situation and like has made peace with mosquito bites and not putting bug repellent on her body and like, making relations with the wild and making relations with discomfort and the difference between like comfort and shelter is just blowing my mind and realizing there's a lot. I have a long way to go here with, um, with that, with my own inner wildness. I love how Nicole says being more feral on trail puts her in touch with her emotions. Like she doesn't cry in like the default civilized world, but she'll cry. She'll cry hike and I ask her like about cry hiking. It's just really powerful, the whole thing. And I, I'm in inquiry from this, this conversation. It's got me thinking, it's got me taking action, it's got me getting outside, and it's got me wondering about discomfort in a deeper way. So with that said, let's jump into this conversation. I talked to Nicole right before she headed out, like a week before, I think, she headed out on the trail, the Appalachian Trail, which she's hiking right now. She's been on it for a month when this episode comes out, and who knows if she's going to do another month or another week. You'll hear about her approach to this hike. So let's dive in to this conversation with Nicole Antoinette. Do you count your hikes? Like, is this your X number hike? Long distance hikes, I guess. Let me see. 2016, 17,
1: 18, 19, 21. This will be my sixth. Okay, so when did you start hiking? I started, I mean, I had done some day hikes and stuff beforehand, but I
0: started long distance hiking in 2016. And what made you want to start? How much time do you have? <laughs> All the time. I, because, Okay. Here's the context of the person asking you the questions that the people listening to the podcast know something about is I don't know if I'd want to do that, (laughs) you know, long hiking. And so I'm just like thinking about how I grew up my suburban childhood and like my parents taking me on hikes and me just being annoyed and wanting to be in the mall. And now as an elder and not an elder, as an older person being like, that was really cool that they did that. And like, why didn't I appreciate it? But also I don't know if I'd want to push my body that hard. And then I meet you and I start following you and I see you post like on Instagram from these trails. And then I read your incredible book about hiking the Arizona trail, which is called how to be alone. And it made me feel things And then I was like... What
1: did it make you feel, Becca? Tell me.
0: (laughs) Uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, it talks about things like not having enough water and hiking when your body hurts and keep going and not sleeping for many nights and being so cold you can't feel your body and being alone and a woman and... (laughs) Like alone as a woman in the wilderness and I'm obsessed with eating. And so I'm like, what are you eating and how are you eating it? And is your digestion okay? Pooping, how's the pooping going? And like everything, dehydration. And I find myself as someone who recognized that like, there's a book called The Comfort Crisis that talks about how we, as a human beings, spend 90% of our time indoors, at least in the industrialized world. And that a lot of us are used to the comforts that are like temperature control, And ergonomics and, you know, clothing and all these things that like our ancestors just didn't have and somehow lived, you know, maybe not as long as us, but lived in the wild. And it was a part of their, it was a part of them. So I'm like talking about that. I am right. wrote a book about that. And then I see you living in the discomfort of being out in the wild. And I'm like, why don't I want to do that? Like you want to do that. So that's what I felt. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing.
1: What was your initial question? Why did I start? Why did, why did you want to like, okay,
0: what drew you to it? What was the siren song?
1: Yeah. So I didn't grow up outdoorsy or athletic at all. I grew up in big cities in Manhattan and in London and in LA And was just not an outdoor kid. I was an indoor kid. Let me sit in the corner and read my books and, you know, eat candy. And that was my happy place. I often joke that the most outdoorsy thing my parents have ever done is eat dinner on the patio of a nice restaurant under a heat lamp. Maybe. (laughs) Like maybe. So getting into long distance hiking in my early 30s like really came out of nowhere. There wasn't like really a natural progression. It's not like I was reconnecting to a thing. You know, when you mentioned that your parents took you hiking, that mean that was never, never, never. I don't think my parents have ever gone hiking ever in their lives. And so what happened was about a month before I turned 26, I got sober and I quit drinking and started running on the same day. And like I said, I had never been athletic at all. I, to this day, don't know where that idea came from to decide that I was going to be a runner. I couldn't run for two consecutive minutes at a time. When I started, I was like a proper, proper beginner. And yet something about how hard running was, was all consuming enough to help me stay sober. It was a little bit of a transfer of obsession, I think, for me. I find it really difficult to remove a huge thing from my life without at least temporarily replacing it with something else because otherwise that like gaping black hole, that big vacuum is too much. And so I really went hard on the, okay, I'm going to become a runner. I'm going to do this other thing. And something about the fact that running didn't come easy to me really helped because it helped to hold my attention. I had up until that point been someone who really only liked to do things that she was naturally good at. And, you know, I was quite a high achiever and was really praised for achievement and outcome more than effort when I was a kid. And so I think I learned really quickly that if I started something and wasn't good at it or didn't have any natural talent at it, why bother, right? Like why not go for the things that were an easier path to To praise or validation. And running was the first thing that I ever started and was terrible at and didn't quit. And that really changed something for me. It was like, it sounds almost silly to say it now, but it. For the first time, like opened up inside me a space for the both and of something can be hard and I can still do it. Like it can be hard and also worth it. And that wasn't my experience before that. And so I ran really seriously for about four years. I was super into it. It really kind of took over my life. And a little bit before my four year soberversary, I was running a ton. And physical fitness wise, I was probably you know the peak of what I had ever been. Physically, nothing was wrong, but I was miserable. And I was really not enjoying running. And it took me a while to realize that that's because I was afraid that if I stopped running, that I would start drinking again. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that I was doing this activity out of almost a place of fear and out of a place of not being willing to face whatever was underneath all of that, right? It took me almost four years to even honestly look at the reasons why I was drinking so much to begin with, right? This, this again, could be like a whole other conversation. Mm. But so I decided to take a break from running. That's what I felt like I needed to do. And I thought that it was only going to be a couple of weeks. And that was in 2015. And I pretty much haven't run since. (laughs) So it kicked off a really tough but necessary time of self-exploration and introspection for me that was great. And I'm glad that I did it. And shout out to therapy and all of those things. And yet I found that I missed what I got from a more physical challenge. Especially because I had never done it before. I didn't have sports. I never had that as a background that I felt like this linear progression of, you know, I start here. I can only run for two minutes and then years go by and I'm running marathons. Like there was something so tangible about that progress. And it like it was, I just learned so many lessons from it and I found that I missed it and that I craved it, but I didn't really want to run. And so the winter of 2015 into 2016, I was browsing around on my Kindle and Amazon did the whole, if you liked this book, you will probably like this book thing. And that book uh, was by my now friend, Carrot Quinn, called Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. And it was her memoir of, you know, being someone in their early 30s who did not grow up doing, you know, the kind of like family hiking, backpacking thing who hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. And I I loved it. And for me, it was like, I got, it was like the feeling of obsession that I had with running at the beginning was what I had when I found out what long distance hiking was and that this was a thing that people actually did. There's such an archetype of what it is to be an outdoorsy person, right? Like immediately, especially at that time, I thought, you know, big, burly, white dude with a beard and flannel. (laughs) And that was it, right? Like, that's who goes out into the wilderness. And here's this book by this, like, rad queer person in their early 30s. And I was like, okay, well, Carrot did this hike with very little experience and didn't die. So maybe Mm -hmm. I also could try this and not die. And so I think it was sort of just the right idea at the right time. I had recently moved to Oregon, which was a lot more of an outdoorsy place than any of the big cities that I had ever lived in before. And I thought, okay, the PCT goes through Oregon. Maybe I'll do just that section. And it was, it's about a 460 mile section. And so that was my first long distance hike was, you know, from the California, Oregon border to the Oregon, Washington border. And for me, I think I was just looking to recapture what I didn't have anymore with running. And I don't know that I had a better reason than that, other than that I wanted to. And that kind of came back to bite me in the ass that I didn't have any deeper reasons because I wound up being pretty miserable. And it was a lot harder and more boring than I thought it was going to be.
0: Ooh, wow. I love listening to you. Okay, so yeah, did you go alone for that Mm -hmm. first hike?
1: I went alone. But I mean, these bigger trails, like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, there are other people on them, especially if you go at, you know, some of the more popular times. So I met plenty of other people out when I was out there on that first one, which almost was harder because I had such intense imposter syndrome and like such intense feelings of not belonging because pretty much all of the people based on when I decided to go, all of the people that I was meeting had, were do they were doing the full trail, right? So it's, 2,650 miles from Mexico to Canada. That's the PCT. And so they had started – Months and 1,700 miles before we were meeting. So they had their systems dialed in and they were super fit and they could like, you know, set their tents up with their eyes closed. And I couldn't do any of that. You know, I had these horrible blisters and the first day on that hike was the longest I'd ever hiked in my life. So I felt like, what am I doing? I don't belong here. So it was like, I met other people and they were all so nice to me, but my internal landscape was, Uh I don't belong, I don't belong, I don't belong, I don't belong.
0: Ooh, Yeah. And yeah, how prepared were you? Were you like self-taught or did you like Take a course? No, I took or? I took no
1: course. Um, I mean, again, the PCTs are really well marked. This isn't like a get dropped in the middle of the wilderness, like with a map yeah. and a compass and hope for the best, right? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, there's digital like GPS apps. And so I had those kind of things. I had read some more memoirs about it. I had done what felt to me to be enough research. Uh, I had gotten good advice uh, on gear from other more experienced people. But no, prior to that trip, I had gone car camping once for one night and backpacking once for two nights, all in like the three and a half weeks before I left as like a test thing. So it was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this. And I mean, but I was in my home state, right? So I felt like if I hate this, I can come home. And I did hate it, but I'm stubborn and did not come home. So
0: Okay. So you hated it. Why did you hate it?
1: It was just so hard. I fell into the trap of thinking that social media is reality, <laughs> Uh, Uh, I had I had started in those the months leading up to the hike following lots of long distance hikers, right, and kind of outdoor influencer people on Instagram, who are, of course, posting their beautiful, you know, mountaintop photos and the highlights of it and all of that. And they all just seemed like they were having so much fun. And it was so beautiful. And I'm sure that that was true. And maybe there are some hikers out there for whom it is blissful all of the time. Like, that's great. Please call me, tell me your secrets, like more power to you. But no one talked to about how boring it is to walk for eight to 12 hours a day. And I just was not prepared for spending that much time inside my own mind. And I got a new phone right before I left for the trail and I had done all of the transfer contacts, transfer all the things, and I didn't check to make sure that it actually worked. And so none of my music, none of my podcasts, like I also didn't have anything to listen to. So there was mm-hmm. no escape from myself, essentially. And I think that I was going out there hoping that it was going to be more fun than it was. I think there was just a pretty big gap between the fantasy of the thing and the reality of the thing. And that I, I just wasn't ready for it.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so why did you- Why'd you do another one after that?
1: That's a great question. I When I finished that hike, you could have taken all of my gear and set it on fire, and I would have been like, that's totally fine. I'm never doing this again. <laughs> like, I was convinced that I was never going to do it again. But what happened to me is the same thing that friends of mine who have multiple children have said happens <laughs> to them, where enough time goes by, and you forget that, the bir- that you had a horrific birth situation or <laughs> that the first like couple of years were really hard. And you're like, look at this little person who I love so much, uh, not to, you know, like it's, I know it's an apples to oranges thing, but what happened was enough time went by that I forgot that it was the worst, sort of. And it's really easy to romanticize hard things after they're done, right? Like, oh my gosh, I made it mm-hmm. through that thing. So I think that was part of it. But the other Like maybe more deeper, more true answer is I felt like I didn't get what I wanted from it, Mm. that I – there was just – there was something that I was looking for, whether it was a better relationship with myself, being able to trust myself more. I just had this vision of coming back from that first hike changed, which I think also gets romanticized, right? We go Mm -hmm. on the pilgrimage and we get to the end and then we are this wise person. And that wasn't my experience really at all. And I still wanted that. And it was during a period of time in my life where I felt like I didn't really believe in myself very much. Like I had always been a really independent person. I meant, you know, only child and independent kid and started working and paying for myself at a relatively young age. And. Somewhere along the way, I feel like I lost that a little bit and really started relying a lot on what other people thought. You know, what did my Mm -hmm. partner think? What did my friends think? What did the internet think? Like I was just like crowdsourcing a lot of my life. Not that I ever made the decision to do that. I think that can kind of just like creep in. And there was just a part of me that thought if I go out and do another hike, maybe I will find what I'm looking for. Maybe I'll find, you know, where my self-belief lives. And I don't know. I just felt like I didn't want to give up too soon. I still felt a little bit burned by having quit running that I was like, maybe I, maybe I stopped too soon. Maybe I quit too soon. And yeah, I don't know that it was more like fully formed than that, but it was definitely those collection of feelings and thoughts. So then
0: how long after did you do your next hike?
1: It was the next year. So my first Mm -hmm. hike was in August of 2016. And then I, I, left for the Arizona trail on the 23rd of September of 2017. So it was a little over a year. And that's the later. one I read
0: about. That is the one. So that was your second hike. That was my second hike. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I want to talk about fear. Yeah. So we'll say since that like year span, you've you've gone on many more hikes and you it's safe to say love love it. Meaning between those two hikes, No, I'm saying it's, you've done a lot of hiking since, since that, like that year of the two hikes or the two years of the two hikes. Yes. And you, it seems like a spiritual practice for you.
1: Yeah. I have turned the
0: corner into loving it, but it took me a lot longer than I thought that it was going to. Okay. So before we talk about fears, like I want to know more about that. So you kept at it, maybe stubbornly to try to feel that transformation or, yeah, whatever it is, that moment on the mountaintop Instagram post. And then what was the moment or hike or experience that that felt like, oh, no, this is a big part of my life and this is important and I, I like this?
1: Yeah. So the Arizona Trail, which is what the book is about, that still to this day is the most solitary thing that I have ever done. As opposed to what I said about, you know, the PCT, some of the other trails, Especially then, what was that like five ish years ago? It was not as popular of a trail. And most people who hike it, hike it in the spring because there is more water, you know, as you would imagine, Arizona, quite deserty, quite dry, not a lot of water. And that is, again, dependent on the year, but more so true in the fall. And I didn't see anybody else out there. I met two other long distance hikers in the 800 miles that I was there. One of them, we kind of leapfrogged for a day and a half and another one was less than a day. And the longest stretch that I went without seeing not just any other hikers, but any other people was about four and a half days, which maybe doesn't sound that long. But again, I grew up in Manhattan. I'm an extrovert. I need people to listen to my nonsense and like not seeing anyone for four and a half days. I mean, it felt like the zombie apocalypse had happened and I was the only one left. Like it was... It was the most solitary experience that I've ever had. There was very little cell phone service, so I couldn't even really call home that much. And that definitely, I don't know that it gave me what I was looking for, but it definitely gave me what I needed. Like my relationship with myself really started to change as a result of that hike because I was forced to become a better friend to myself. I was forced to confront why I had such a hard time just spending time with myself and so coming back from that, I wouldn't say that I loved long-distance hiking yet, but I definitely appreciated how much it had done for me in terms of my relationship with myself. And then I went out on another hike in 2018 that I wound up quitting halfway through, which was hard, you know, like failing publicly at something is really hard. And another turn- I remember that. I remember you yeah. shared it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was on trail for 1,600 miles in 87 days, and I quit, which was the right decision for me. And a large part of why that was was that I needed to go home and get divorced, (laughs) right? Right. I, I was married at the time, and we had been having some conversations before I left for that hike of... Are we staying in this relationship? What's going to happen? And we said, we'll put a pin in it while I go do this hike. And it turns out that I don't know about anyone else, but I couldn't put a pin in such an important conversation for that amount of time. And it was, it just really fucked me up. I wasn't sleeping and I was really anxious. And so I went up quitting the hike and going home and, you know, beginning that uncoupling process with my former spouse. And I think that was a turning point for me in reevaluating what role I want long distance hiking to have in my life because it was something that I loved and it was not something that he had any interest in even remotely at all, which mm-hmm. is totally fair. It wasn't something that I had been into when we got together, right? So it was a change that I had made. And it's really hard to be the partner who stays at home while someone else goes out for a month, two months, three months at a time. And it's something that you don't share. I think that couples, of course, can and should have separate interests, but there is something about this that's so all consuming that I think it for at least for us, it was challenging, especially when combined with some other incompatibilities. And in that divorce process, I kept kind of checking myself on, are you getting divorced because of hiking, right? And like, I, I didn't get divorced because of long distance hiking, but I didn't not either. There was like <laughs> something about the life that I wanted and I've been self-employed for a very long time. I've built a lot of autonomy and freedom into my schedule on purpose, but I kept being partnered with people who didn't have and didn't want that same thing. Traditional jobs, corporate jobs, two weeks of vacation of a year, right? And so it was a fork in the road for me of what is the type of life that I'm actually trying to build for myself. And I felt that long distance hiking was going to be part of it, or at least I wanted to try and see if it was part of it. And, you know, did the divorce, did the uncoupling, was like really ready to set my life up for okay, I'm going to spend a huge chunk of the year out on trail and see what happens, and then pandemic. And Mm -hmm. so obviously those trips got canceled. So it's been a really interesting kind of waiting period for, do I actually want this as much as I thought that I wanted this? Is the dream still real? I was able to go out and do the Colorado Trail last summer, which uh, is just shy of 500 miles. So again, it was like 28 days. And that was the most fun I have ever had on a long distance hike. It was incredible. And I, this is a very long answer to the question of what made me love it. But what made me love it was having it taken away Mm -hmm. that I took for granted that I was always going to be able to go out on trail or that I was always going to be able to travel. And then with the pandemic and being at home and, you know, being in isolation and not traveling and not doing those things, it was almost like, wait, oh, I do, I want this so much and I didn't realize the extent to which I wanted it until I couldn't do it. And when I went out last year to do that hike, it was with the most- Gratitude and appreciation that I have ever stepped foot on trail. It changed how I feel about the land, how I feel about reciprocity, how I feel about just so many things. It felt like this unbelievable gift and this thing that I got to do, as opposed to this hard thing that I was making myself do for self development reasons. So that's kind of where I've landed of like, oh yeah, I love this. And it is still hard and there is still like a self-development aspect to it. I like who I am on trail I, within myself. I like how I treat myself. I like all of that. But it was, it was the aspect of having it taken away that made me realize that I wanted it.
0: Mm. Yeah, what I'm hearing you say is – the initial experiences felt very isolating and lonely, and you had to just face your feelings of self and 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 your head and your heart and your truth. And now, what I'm hearing you say is there's like a a change in relationship with the land. And what I'm and what I'm maybe assuming here is that you feel less alone out there, mm-hmm. that you're aware more of like the more than living or the more than human. Sorry, living world. And I'd love to know more about what's changed with that for, you know, just speaking from someone who's had to really work towards remembering that like there is life and there is kinship all around us and you don't just have to like go to a, you know, crowded space of people to feel that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and to be honest, it's work like yours, right? And books like yours that have been really helpful in helping to switch that perspective for me. But I will say on a, on a really just like basic foundational level getting more experience with long distance hiking helped because when you're in pain every step and so afraid, it's really hard to see outside of yourself, or at least it was for me. And so I don't know that I could have really had that degree of appreciation because I was so miserable and it was so hard and I doubted myself so much. Uh, Whereas last year when I went out and what I'm experiencing now in the lead up to this, you know, coming hike is, at least with this style of hiking on a developed trail, right, Uh, that I know what I'm doing. I don't feel like I have imposter syndrome anymore. Of course, there's still more to learn and there always will be, but there's more space for other feelings because I'm not just terrified and in agony all the time.
0: Why would you want to experience that level of pain?
1: I didn't go out there to be like, I hope this is terrible, right? Like, this is not some, like, masochistic thing.
0: The level of discomfort –
1: I mean, and obviously you – are talking specifically about that hike on the Arizona Trail, right? So that was still relatively. I'm fresh early. off your words. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was just
0: like, why? Yeah, How? no, I mean, and that
1: that's really fair. That's really fair. It's a great question, why? So I'm definitely a type two fun person, right? The type of th- the type of fun that isn't necessarily fun in the moment, but is really fun in retrospect. I love yeah. that. That's mm. huge for me. So I think a little bit I'm oriented that way, but. Okay, let me see if I can articulate this, you know, the why of doing hard things. Again, it's not that, it's not that I want to be physically in pain, right? Like the times I've gone out on a hike and done a lot of training beforehand were a lot more enjoyable. (laughs) Like there's definitely things that you can do to mitigate that to some degree. But my friend Lauren says something that I think about all the time about how it's a privilege to be able to choose your suffering. Mm -hmm. So, I guess I'll say that first because I think that it's really easy with things like this to glorify suffering, which I don't want to do. So Mm -hmm. this is all chosen suffering. And there is something to that of I've put myself in this situation to do a hard thing. Let me see if I can actually do it that I really like. I also like the hard things because of the opportunity that they give me to treat myself well or to work on my relationship with myself and my conversation with myself in moments that I judge to be my own failings or my own weaknesses or my own inadequacies. Like, I've just been so hard on myself my whole life. Mm. And I know that I'm not alone in that, right? Lots lots of us have internal dialogue that is the type that we would never say to somebody else, right? Even someone that we didn't like. And for whatever reason I find that these are the situations, particularly when I'm alone, where I notice How much, like, the situation is hard, right? Your legs are sore. You're dehydrated. Um, you're hiking uphill in the heat of the day for hours. Like, that just at a base level is hard. Why would I make it harder by also being an asshole to myself? And I think that that realization over and over again of the ways in which, like, there is the thing that is happening. And then there is whatever story I'm telling myself about the thing that is happening. And that is where I, have really enjoyed playing with that relationship. And for whatever, like maybe I could work on that more, you know, at home, like at my desk, like it certainly comes up in my writing practice and in other things like these aren't isolated skills, but there's something about the intensity of those, those hard experiences that lets me work on my relationship with myself in a way that nothing else does. And I have a history of giving my power away, meaning I will assume that other people know more than me, right? Whether they are more experienced or not. This happened when I, you know, first got into self-employment. It happened when I first got into hiking. It happens at the beginning of pretty much everything and, like, even deeper into the experience of this expert says I should do X. This guru says I should do this. And great. Yes. Have teachers. Have mentors. Like, learn from people. Be humble. And... We have our own knowing, we have our own intuition, we have something going on inside of us that also is a really important part of the puzzle. And I feel like I'm so quick to abandon that. But when I'm out there doing hard things on my own, and there's nobody else to ask, I sort of have to be my own expert in in those moments of, well, should I keep going to the next campsite or should I stay here? Is this a good place to get water or do I think that I can make it to the next water source? Like each of these little decisions that I would very easily default into somebody, giving to somebody
0: else, I like to practice doing those things for myself, if that makes sense. Wow, it does make sense. It's really, really resonating for me. And I I just, you know, I keep thinking like, what would I have done having like read that trail journal? Like what would I have done in those moments? Like I would have asked, I would ask someone, (laughs) but you can't. And
1: And if there's nobody to ask, it puts you in like a really interesting situation. You know, that I think was really useful for me and to help me rely on myself. I'm also a much more positive person when I'm alone. If there's no one else to complain to, I don't complain. Like I just get on with it. That I'm, and maybe positive isn't the right word, but I'm definitely tougher. I'm definitely more resilient. And those are things that I have cultivated Sort of trial by fire on trail that I have been able to take back into the rest of my life and integrate, which is really, it is really awesome. I I will say a huge part of the draw for me in long distance hiking is that it's not easy, but it is simple in a way that nothing else in my life Mm -hmm. is that like. This is my one outfit, so there's no asking myself what I want to wear today because these like disgusting, smelly clothes that I haven't washed in, you know, however many miles since the last town or the town before that, that's what I'm wearing. What I'm eating is the things that are already in my food bag, right? Like that is that is what I have with me. And so really the goal every day is walk from point A to point B, don't die. Like that's it. Like, walk as far as you can, (laughs) stop when you want to stop, make sure you get to the next water source before you run out of water, make sure you get to the next town before you totally run out of food. And I feel like the rest of my life, the rest of a lot of our lives, they're kind of chaotic sometimes or frantic or... They just don't make as much sense or there isn't as clear of an end date. Like there's something that I love about, you know, I turn around on when I'm, you know, on the ridge top, and I look and I see the mountain range behind me. You know, I crossed that however many days ago. Like there's just something so tangible about mm-hmm. that, like being able to look at the map and like I was here and now I'm here and tomorrow I'll be here and in a month I'll be here. Like I love that. I love the fact that it's not easy, but it is very simple.
0: Hmm. Can you tell us about Tink?
1: Oh, sure. So there's a tradition in long-distance hiking culture where you get what's called a trail name. And, of course, you can pick your own trail name, but it's usually that other hikers give you a trail name because of something, like, silly or you know, stupid that you did on trail. And, of course, you can reject the trail name that people give you. But my trail name uh, is Tinkerbell or Tink for short, which I'm happy to tell you the story of if you'd like. Yes. So my first hike, 2016, I was at REI a couple days before I left in a state of complete panic of what have I forgotten, right? Like I'm leaving in a few days. What have I not bought that I need to have with me? And it's uh, said that you pack your fears, right? So whatever you're most afraid of, that's what you're going to have packed too much of or like brought unnecessary gear. And I was so afraid of the wild animals, like particularly bears and mountain lions, that like I was just convinced that something was going to try to eat my face in the night. And I will tell you, I'm still afraid of that, right? Yeah, like it's really. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, That yeah, I know that we're, I'm sure we'll circle back to fears, but that, you know, I am definitely still afraid in different ways, but, you know, I, I'm still afraid. But my, the fear that I had at that point, you know, I had never seen any of these animals in the wild before, and I just was terrified. And so the impulse purchase that I made at REI was a tiny bear bell. And it's this like little bell that you're supposed to hang on your pack, first of all, it, like, is quieter than the bell that you would put around the collar of a kitten. Like, they have bigger ones as well, but this was some, like, tiny, still—I think it's only meant for people like me, right, who are like, oh, yeah, I definitely need this. It, it would have done nothing, so let me just tell you that. <laughs> but so I had this little bell, and um, it was in my hip belt pocket, and my second day on trail, right, so I had camped alone for the first time, and I was, you know, I— Stayed awake all night, just like terrified that every sound I heard outside was something coming to get me. And, you know, it was it was awful. So I was exhausted. I get up in the morning, pack all my stuff away, and I go to start hiking. And I'm hiking toward what's going to be my first water source of the day and water source that I really need to fill up at because I'm almost empty and it's going to be a while before the next one. And so as I'm going, it's, the, you know, the thin strip of trail and, you know, sloped on both sides, up and down. And I see... As I start to get there, that there's a herd of cows on the trail, right? And they are also enjoying this water source. And I, again, I grew up in Manhattan. I had never. Been that close to cows before and they're huge. Like, if anyone has not been like cows are enormous. And so my logical brain was like, this is gonna be fine. This cow is not a bear. Like it's you know, but there were so many of them and they were blocking the trail and there was no way that I could go around them. And I'm like, okay, what if they revolt? What if they kick me? What if like I just, you know, was freaking out, freaking out, freaking out, but I need to get the water and I need to get by them. So I take my little bell out of my pocket and I'm ringing the bell right excuse me excuse me excuse me for like 45 minutes trying to like make my way around the cows but not come too close to the cows that I'm gonna anger the cows and the whole time I'm just ringing the bell ringing the bell ringing the bell it does nothing the cows give no fucks about this this bell let me tell you And so, you know, I'm doing this, I'm like doing, you know, trying to stay light on my feet, trying to dance, you know, trying to fill up the water without making them upset that I'm stealing their water. It's this whole production. And so that night I wound up camping with a bunch of through hikers, a bunch of folks who had, you know, started down in, um, at the Mexican border and had been on trail for, you know, 1700 plus miles. And I'm recounting this story and something about the bell. And I guess the way that I looked when I was telling the story, uh, one of them gave me the trail name Tinkerbell. <laughs> so... I do not have that little bell anymore. Actually, I think I might have kept it as like a little keepsake, but I don't cope yeah. with it.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's such a great story. So, yeah, what what is there to be scared of? What is oh there God. to fear out
1: there? Seems like a lot. It, it does seem like a lot. It is a lot. I'm scared of all of it. I mean, the unknown is always scary. Yeah. I'm scared more so on different trails, but scared of getting lost. Scared, on, on the Colorado Trail, my big fear was getting stuck above treeline in a lightning storm, which, you know, almost happened to me. I had a very close call. That was probably the most one of the most afraid I've ever been on trail, was, you know, seeing the lightning like right over the next ridge line and being like, I'm at 13,000 feet. Like, there, I have to get below treeline before this happens. There's literally nowhere to hide. That was pretty scary. Is that because um, you would be struck? I mean, there's potential, right? Like it's obviously not yeah. guaranteed. But if if you're up there and there's nothing taller than you, right? And like I have my metal trekking poles, I have metal in my pack and stuff. I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that was pretty scary. You know, so random weather things. But I would say my biggest fear is I've never hiked in grizzly country. I think that would be my biggest fear. I would definitely bring different things if that were the case. You know, I've never hiked with bear spray, but I would there. But I'm really afraid of mountain lions. And Yeah, just the like sort of unknown of animal behavior. I still have a a hard time sleeping on trail. I'm not a great sleeper in general, but every little, every little sound in the night, which is like, it's probably a chipmunk or it's probably a deer. It's almost always a deer, but your brain at two in the morning when it's pitch black, you're like, Oh, cool. I'm going to die. So for, for me, that's a lot of what it is. I, I mean, one of the biggest fears used to be myself. I was afraid that I wasn't capable enough. I was afraid that I wasn't tough enough that I couldn't do it, and that is no longer true, and that feels incredible to be able to say that.
0: Wow. I think one of my biggest fears would be other hikers, like scary people who would want to like attack me or hurt me. Yeah,
1: I I mean there's certainly when it comes to other like long distance hikers, there's people that aren't my people. I don't like them, yeah. but I've, you know, I'm not like, okay, let's be best buddies, but I have never had a situation with another hiker where I felt unsafe. Yeah, right. I would say that when it comes to the other people fears, for me, that's like, especially being completely alone. This happened on the Arizona Trail where like, you know, you're at a remote trailhead and there's like some dude in a truck, right? And he knows you're alone. You know, you're alone. And it's not, again, nothing has happened, but- to move through the world as a woman is to have that, you know, constantly on your mind, unfortunately. And so, yeah, that definitely plays a role, especially when I'm completely by myself. I just have like some rules for myself of, you know, I I'll try not to camp closer than a mile to a trailhead or a road. I'll try, you know, not to be visible in those types of situations. Something that I committed to myself when I left for the Arizona trail, I actually don't think that this is in the book, but, um, I promised myself that even if it didn't make any logical sense that I would listen to my intuition. And that was something that I had never really done very much before. Like I'm, I'm the let's make a spreadsheet about it person. And you know, which, which is fine. I love that part of myself, but I'm, I had traditionally been really good at talking myself out of whatever those little like inner whisperings were. If I didn't feel like they made logical sense on the surface and I promised myself that I wouldn't do that. And so there were a couple of times where. I was already set up, you know, for camp for the night and something happened or some dude drove by or where I'm just like, I got that inner sense of like, you need to leave. You need to pack up and you need to leave right now. Not because anything had happened, not because anyone had threatened me, but Mm -hmm. I kept that commitment to myself and I have... Now, really started doing that kind of in all areas of my life. That it doesn't need to make sense. If mm-hmm. this feels true to me, I'm gonna give myself permission to act on it and not talk myself, but essentially not gaslight myself about what feels true. If I don't feel safe, I'm gonna leave.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Can you tell us about cry hiking? What would you like to know about cry hiking? What's? I mean, I'm assuming. <laughs> when you're hiking and crying. That is exactly time. true. Yes, that is exactly true. Do you have anything to share about that? I don't know, it just really struck me when I read about it. It's like cry um, hiking. Cry uh, hiking. Yeah, so
1: I am not really someone who cries. I just that's not my go-to way of emoting. That has always been the case. I don't I don't really cry except when I'm on trail. There is something about maybe it's the level of physical exhaustion. Maybe it's like the stripping away of all of the bullshit. I'm sure it's a bunch of that kind of stuff together, but it makes me just like a raw little nerve. And it makes me exhaust all of my previously inexhaustible thought loops. So like at some point you get sick of thinking about the same thing or dwelling on the same thing or being emotional about the same thing. And I – Often wind up crying about things like that. And so I have a lot of experiences of crying while hiking, which for people who really know me well is funny because I just don't really cry that much in my regular life. But there is definitely a sort of catharsis out there. I also feel like I'm willing to be messier in all senses of the word on trail than I am off trail. There's like an inhibition and some kind Mm. of a release. And it like frees me for as much as I try to be anti-perfectionist and, you know, all of that stuff. I do feel whatever, like more feral on trail. And I think that that puts me in touch with my emotions more and like that I can express them better. Cool. Yeah. Long distance hiking, A plus would recommend.
0: (laughs) Well, I think I might be starting to be convinced <laughs> Great. okay like you let me know you call me we'll go <laughs> oh my gosh yeah okay there's a part of me that wants to be like I actually we dm and text about things where I'm like how do you charge your phone because I didn't even think that you could like bring a phone and headphones excellent and like when you have service you can check things excellent I just thought you're just like techless so I was like and then I think things like how much food, because like, you don't want it to be too heavy, but like, I would bring too much food because I'm, mean, snacks.
1: Well, and that's the type of stuff you learn for, you learn from experience, right? Like you learn the same way that, you know, people have different hydration needs that, you know, maybe I need on a, you know, reasonable temperature day, not super, super hot. Let's say I need, I don't know, maybe a liter every like, five to seven miles, maybe someone else needs it every two to three miles, right? Or maybe someone can go longer. There's this and the same thing, like depending upon what your body is, you're going to have different food needs. And I have both brought too much and too little over time. Something I I try so hard to maintain what feels like a healthy, body image, relationship with my body, opting out of diet culture. And as we know, like, you know, we are the fish, that is the water that we swim in. And I, a hard aspect of long distance hiking for me is that there can be just like in the rest of the world, a lot of glorification of like weight loss or a body change. And I really try to not participate in that in any way. And when I was on the Arizona trail, I wasn't eating enough partially because I couldn't carry like physically because it's such a dry trail. I had to carry so much water. Like I was regularly carrying 11 pounds of water, plus all my food, plus all my gear. And I'm not a super strong person. And compare that to the Colorado trail where there's a lot of water and I was carrying like two pounds of water at a time. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And so I couldn't carry enough food and I wound up losing weight and it really messed me up like mentally when I got off that trail. It really messed mm. me up and it made me make a commitment to the best of my ability. I am going to try to, you know, eat as much as I can and like bring, bring more food than that, which, you know, of course your body composition is going to change. You're working out eight to 12 hours a day. That's not only not sustainable, it wouldn't be healthy if that was what we were doing, you know, but it has really changed. I bring a, a lot more food now than I used to.
0: hmm Yeah
1: but you learn all that stuff by going right like and also there's so many cool resources right like other hikers are so generous with their experience if you want for the show notes i can send you a link to my gear yes. list right yes please And even that, that's the kind of stuff you learn over time. Like, I do much better physically when my pack is lighter. And lightweight gear is inaccessible. It's incredibly expensive. It's mostly not sold at, like, in-person stores like REI. It's, like, online, you know, kind of cottage industry stuff. It's usually not size-inclusive. And this isn't true across the board. And, you know, progress is being made. But to get the gear list that I have now took me years and years, right, to save up for things and make those changes. But. All of those types of questions that I had at the beginning of, like, oh, my God, what do you mean I have to dig a hole and poop in it and, like, pack the toilet paper out in my trash? Like, that just seemed like something I could never, ever do. And you get used to it pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. You know about gear trade? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I've never used it, but, yeah. I just sold a bunch of stuff on there. It's really great. Yeah, you can get awesome used gear. Yeah. You know, use things, borrow things, start with what it is that you have.
0: Yeah. I, the accessibility, yeah. Hiking being like a, (laughs) like a white person's game is like a total thing in the culture. And yeah. And then also with size inclusivity, I'm someone who like was sized out of REI. And that really frustrated me and actually made me less physical Mm -hmm. because I, I mean, it's, it's different now. I have to order things online, but, um, yeah it's 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 a changing world but i'm glad you brought, brought that up okay so my final question to you is you said a thing that i was like i need to know what that means around the transformation that you did have around recipro- feeling a difference around reciprocity and about the land and and where you're at because now it's like it's you're in a devotional practice of long distance hiking solo hiking Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, how do you feel about yourself in the world now? I don't know that I have a very
1: soundbitey answer to this because it's a very work in progress. Sure. I feel a lot more like a small part of a much bigger, more complicated thing than I think, I mean, we all have main character syndrome to a degree, but, you know, Mm -hmm. when I first started long distance hiking, it was all the focus was like on me and my experience and like the trails or the landscape. It was sort of just like the backdrop to this thing that I was going through. And that has really changed in a way that feels useful and beautiful. And for me, it's about trying to move lightly through the spaces, paying attention to what it is that's around me, trying to learn, like, okay, what is the name of this flower, right? Like, let me take a picture of this flower and look it up when I have service. Just things that I really wouldn't have done before. I would have been like, cool, pretty flower. Next. Like, actually trying to do that. It's changed. You know, I think when I first started hiking, I didn't have as much of an appreciation for the fact that all of these trails are on stolen land, and what does it mean to have these huge adventures on them? And, you know, f- practically speaking for me, that has meant, you know, including the part of my hiking budget is getting redistributed to the folks whose land that it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the you know financial position to be able to do that. But that's not something that I prioritized when I first started hiking. And it is something that I prioritize now, even if that means I'm hiking less because I'm taking
0: more time to save up more money so that that can and be you're, a part and, of it. And can you just tell us – Some people have little blocks here that I think are important. Like you look up the tribal affiliation and you find a donation button.
1: A starting point for me is, what's that website? Nativeland.ca, I
0: think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's
1: usually where I'll start. And then that will take me to other websites and other websites. And not all of them have, you know, donate or financial contribution buttons. But some of them do. A lot of them do. Or they have like a community fund. That you can give to. So, you know, I'm going out on the Appalachian Trail, which from my research runs through at least 22 native territories, right? So it's doing that learning and making those payments. You know, we're not talking about huge sums of money. That's, I don't have access to huge sums of money, but I'm just trying to think about what does reciprocity mean in lots of ways and some of them being emotional and, you know, some of the things that you beautifully talk about in your book and then some of them being more tangible of Okay, well, I can spend this money on this tent. I also then will be spending money, you know, redistributing
0: that yeah. money.
1: So, that's part of it, but I it's I mean it's a beautiful question and it's something that I am continuing to think about.
0: Mhm. And then how has this practice this hiking practice informed your work? Mm. Well,
1: I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. And I have microblogged every day of every hike that I have done on Instagram. I have a practice of archiving all of my Instagram once a year. So those things aren't still up and available for folks. But I love the combination of adventure and writing together. Mm -hmm. There's, I feel like it's some of my clearest, best writing. And also that it Like, I understand myself through writing. I understand, like, that's how I process. And so doing that in real time, like, while hiking, it makes whatever the lessons that I'm learning sink in so much more deeply, I think, than it would if I weren't doing that. So it's definitely informed that aspect of my work because I write about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And I also think that in a maybe, like, bigger picture or more meta way, we are the common denominators in every aspect of our lives. So it's really impossible to learn something in one arena of your life and to some degree not have it carry over elsewhere. That, you know, in terms of learning to trust my intuition and not give all of my power away and, you know, be resilient and embody the fact that something can be hard or scary and I can still do it, that all comes up in work as well, right? Whether it's like the vulnerability of, you know, the day you launched the sales page for the course that you created right or any of these things maybe it doesn't feel the same as the vulnerability of like oh god I'm, i might get struck by lightning but the the like core of it is the same it's just a different degree of intensity and so i think that remembering I'm able in my work to remind myself of what I know to be true on trail and that as much as the having a trail name, right? Like being Tink, like that does give me sort of an alter ego of sorts that like Tink is a lot tougher than Nicole is and they're both me, right? So like while it can be useful to be like, I am putting on my trail identity because maybe Nicole can't do this, but like Tink definitely can, like that's useful. But mm-hmm. also I need to remember that the person who outhiked that lightning storm can also do other scary things.
0: Hmm. <laughs> Beautiful. Wow. Well, thank you so much for hopping on and talking about this, this aspect of your life
1: as yeah. someone who's
0: like watching and being like, what? Wow. Like, obviously there's a magnetism there that I'm going to pay attention to in my own life. Um, let's tell the people about the things that you do. You have a really awesome podcast
1: Thank you, that um, you have
0: been a guest on. Yes. Yeah, that I shared far and wide because I was really proud of that conversation I had with you, particularly about um, the baby bomb, having getting married and then having a kid. And then I'm also a patron of yours and have been for several years. And y- you have a extremely rad Patreon. Like, like you, I like how you're doing it. So I'm. If you want to share about those or anything else, including um, your writing wild letters, anything you want to share? Let's
1: let's tell the people. Tell the people. Um, I have a really quirky, all-over-the-place business model that is impossible to sum up into an elevator pitch, and that is on purpose and exactly the way that I like it. But all of the work that I do does sort of circle around, I think, the themes of self-exploration and honest conversations, You know, both that we're having with each other and that we're having with ourselves. Honestly, if people are into any aspect of that, NicoleAntoinette.com. You can kind of learn about all the things. I feel like it would take us another 20 minutes. we yeah. would to be like, and there's this project, and there's this project. But I have a podcast. I have a, it's called The Pop-Up Pod because it functions like a pop-up shop or a pop-up restaurant where it's there sometimes and gone sometimes. And right now it's gone and it will come back later in the year. But you can uh, listen
0: to the first season.
1: You can listen to the first season and all of my projects are built in some kind of like a cyclical seasonal model. I'm a huge fan of rest and taking breaks and not being part of the like constant never ending content churn. And so, you know, I put projects on pause for a while and then they come back but they all live on my website so that that is a good place i don't know when you're gonna release this but i am gonna be microblogging from the at on instagram so that'll be like the main public thing that i'm doing for the next few months is trail writing.
0: oh great yeah this is coming out at the end of may so
1: okay yeah so um, i'm starting in early may on the trail how long are you going to be out there that's a great question. I'm not, I don't have the time to do the whole trail. It's like almost 2,200 miles, but I do have a good chunk of time um, pretty much off. So I'm just going to go down and I'm going to walk until I don't want to walk anymore. Maybe a month, maybe two months. <laughs> I'm really not physically fit. I will tell you that for trail. I had just like some mental health challenges over the winter. And every time I thought I'm going to start training and like getting fit for things, I, in fact, didn't do that. And so I only made this decision to go a couple weeks ago. And so Mm -hmm. there will be like an easing in process for sure. But this is the most sort of like spontaneous YOLO hike that I've ever done. I don't have a plan. I don't have my typically detailed spreadsheet. I don't know how long I'm going to be out there. I don't know how far I'm going to go. But I'm just gonna start, and I'm gonna see how I feel. And when I don't want to do it anymore, I'm gonna come home.
0: What a life! <laughs> well, well, I'll be thinking of you out there. Thank you, and thank you, thank you. Excited to hear all the lessons and everything that you so beautifully share in such relatable and important ways. So, thank you for being here on Belonging. Thanks, and friend. And yeah, everyone show notes here will be lots. There'll be hiking, hiking guides and links to things to find out more about Nicole and follow her and all the things. So you don't just have to read wild. (laughs) (laughs) Also a great book, but yes. Great book. But yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. In a time when our attention is being pulled in so many different directions, it means a lot that you took time out of your day to spend it with me and in these important conversations. For show notes and links and more information about my guests, you can head to belongingpodcast.com. And if you'd like to hear more from me and get access to my free newsletter called Slow and Seasonal, you can head to beccapiastrelli.com slash subscribe.